Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is Andrew Kenobi, Director of Australia Fixed Income at Franklin Templeton. He's been in the role since 2014 and is responsible for steering the macro strategy, credit research, and fixed income portfolio construction. Prior to that, Andrew was Director and Portfolio Manager for Deutsche Asset and Wealth Management. He also had stints at Invesco and ABN AMRO. Fixed income has had a torrid time of it the last year. In fact, by some measures, it's been the worst year on record, with US Treasuries losing about a tenth of their value. But if you're thinking about getting out of fixed income, think again. Crystallizing a loss by panic selling may be the worst thing you can do. And as Andrew explains, rates can only go so high, so we might be very far away from a golden era in fixed income. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Well, Andrew, thanks for coming on The Rules of Investing. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much, David. Thanks for having me. So last week, we got the 9.1 CPI figure out of the US. Are we now at DEFCON 1 in markets? Yeah, it was a pretty pretty big figure. It was expected to be a strong number. uh, And obviously, the US gets their inflation releases every single month. So you don't have to wait too long between those data events. Uh, Look, certainly, we are phasing through some sort of cycle high in inflation. we have been of the view and many others that we're likely to be fairly close to some sort of peak. So we'd like to say that the number we've just had is definitively the top. But uh, I think more importantly, looking forward, there's plenty of signs that whilst inflation isn't going to be you know, reversing down to sort of 2 or 3% in the very, very short term, we should see some sort of deceleration uh, over the coming months and certainly over the coming quarters. And so that's the good news. Uh, so yes, very alarming, but you know we shouldn't take that to be necessarily some sort of ongoing, persistent, high single-digit outcome. Do you think central banks will err on the side of doing too much or too little um, in their fight against inflation? I think right now they are prepared to err on the side of doing too much. So the reaction function of central banks almost across the world at the moment is let's be aggressive, let's be fast. Let's get interest rates high uh, in order to be uh, you know, as confident as they can be that they have slowed demand sufficiently to ensure that inflation doesn't rage away. And then they can deal with what happens next afterwards. So you know, if they raise rates very quickly and indeed they feel I've overstepped, well, they can cut them again. If they don't raise rates quickly and enough, then they don't want to be dealing with this sort of inflation problem in 2023. So I think that's the playbook at the moment. Where should investors be getting their cues from? Is central bank guidance out the window? It's just last year, uh, Phil Lowe was saying, you know, we wouldn't be having <laughs> rate increases until 2023. Um, obviously, that plan went to hell in a handbasket. Um, yeah, sh- should investors be looking to, to what the market's telling us instead of, you know, the utterings of central bankers? So, look, that's a great question. I think as as it concerns inflation, there's a few things we need to look at to try and get a a picture in terms of the overall framework and where are we going to be in 12 months' time. So, inflation is obviously a very lagging indicator in markets. And you could argue that what we're currently experiencing at the moment is a function of a whole range of things that have occurred over the last 12 plus months. 
So what is happening now that gives us some clarity on, on where we could be fast forward, you know, 12, 12 plus months? Um, so I think they're the things to focus on. What are we looking at in that regard? So certainly things like commodity prices, which have come off quite a lot. Um, so that's that's very encouraging. Uh, growth cyclical metals, copper, they're off more than 30%. Even oil is off from its high. So that's positive. Uh, we're also looking for the impact that uh, you know the rate rises that have been delivered so far are having on behavior uh, and on demand, particularly for the household sector. And so again, you can see you know many signs that growth in terms of consumption demand is slowing. That again should start to ease inflationary pressures going forward twelve months. And of course, you know finally, one of the important things as well, which has surprised many, including um, central banks, is how strong employment markets have been um, coming out of the uh, the pandemic. And so we're starting with very low unemployment. That's put pressure on on wages to some degree. What are the forward-looking indicators around employment? Again, um, you know, markets are in good shape, but there is some reason to expect that, you know, things are going to start to settle down uh, over the next six to twelve months. So it's probably not DEFCON one, um, but you know, there's there's certainly you know reason to be on our toes just because, you know, we've come out of this pandemic. Um, the economy's been roaring. Uh, it is slowing. Um, so you know, we're looking more to those forward-looking indicators than what the central banks tell us. A lot of commentators are drawing parallels between the situation we're in today with inflation uh, and th- the 70s. Many of the conditions are the same, tight labour market, disruption from war, uh, a period of easy monetary policy, social unrest. And importantly, inflation back then in the US was over 8%. Um, and that was actually before the OPEC uh, energy shocks. And that, w- that situation was only really rectified with recession. Is recession something we have to have to have to get through this period or can there be a soft landing? Well, we think, uh, you know, 2022 is very, very different to the 70s and 60s in terms of the landscape. Um, demographics are very different. We don't have the same surge in young working age um, uh, folks, household formation kind of piling into the economy. We do have a much more open and globalized economy in terms of the way production is ordered. I know everyone talks about globalization is kind of finished post the pandemic. We don't think that's the case at all. We certainly think there are marginal shifts, but it's still a very globalized world, which is you know generally keeping production costs lower. We have much higher debt levels now than when we did uh, at that time in, in history. And of course, we have you know the deflationary forces of technology as well uh, working away. So, you know, we certainly have to be cognizant that um, you know these risks could persist. But the structure of the economies that we're looking at, to be honest, is very, very different. Um, and of course, you know, one of the key outcomes of that is the way wages are linked to inflation is a lot um, is a lot less formalized than it was in times past. Rates of unionization are much lower, et cetera, et cetera. So the good news is that in the absence of inflation staying at these very heady levels for an extended period of time, the risks of a so-called wage prices spiral uh, still remain reasonably low. Is it possible for rate hikes to completely solve the problem? A lot of this inflation is um, 
supply side inflation. And obviously, uh, the monetary lever is a demand side um, instrument. Um, how long does it take for you know rate hikes to filter from the demand side across to the supply side? Well, to our mind, central banks are focused on financial conditions in general, uh, but they only have certain tools that they can use to change those conditions. So the interest rate policy tool is is the the most important one, of course. But um, what they're doing when they change monetary policy is looking to tighten financial conditions. And so that has an, an impact in a number of ways. For example, the Federal Reserve, they've been raising the policy rate. Um, the US dollar, the currency is you know, at multi, multi-year highs. Uh, equity prices are lower. Funding spreads in terms of credit spreads are wider. Uh, and so all of these things have combined to tighten liquidity and monetary conditions for uh, US consumers and, and corporations. And so they will be mindful of trying to calibrate things um, from the perspective that they've got one tool, but it flows through to the economy in different ways. And, you know, trying not to overshoot. Um, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, because these policy moves work with such a lag, the tightening that is going on now is, of course, going to impact behaviour going in into coming months and quarters. So, look, recession risk is high. Uh, it's probably not a base case. And, of course, there's recessions and then there's recessions that feel like recessions, by which we mean, you know, there's, there's rising unemployment and there's clearly signs of uh, economic downturn, um, you know, in the ordinary kind of day-to-day -day affairs. Um, so that latter case, we would say still is a risk uh, and not one to be dismissed, but probably still a risk rather than a central case. In Australia, it seems like the housing market is a bit of a joker in the pack um, when you compare our situation to America's situation. America's national wealth isn't nearly as tied up uh, in residential property as ours is. How does the Australia's property market factor into uh, the RBA's calculus? Well, we think the, the property market in Australia is huge uh, in terms of the macroeconomic position. Uh, Governor Lowe certainly downplayed um, some of those characteristics in, in recent comments he's made, um, pointing to you know, the percentage of Australians who have a mortgage. Um, you know, it's 35 to 40%. I forget the exact figure, but, you know, highlighting that, you know, there's only so many people who have a mortgage and therefore exposed, et cetera. But the fact is that residential real estate in this country is in the order of 10 trillion. Uh, it's been on an almost uninterrupted move higher over many, many years with the occasional short-term cessation of that price trend. But nonetheless, it's been generally moving higher um, almost without without cease. And of course, funding costs for real estate have been falling and falling. And so that's engendered behavior where, you know, we have amongst the highest household debt levels in the world. Uh, and so, you know, the sensitivity for a move in monetary policy in this country is higher than it is, uh, for example, in the United States. Firstly, because we have higher debt levels. And secondly, because the structure of our borrowing market much more directly links changes in the policy rate to the interest rate that individuals in the street feel, you know, within pretty short order. So that to us is a very key reason why the rate rises that the RBA has delivered so far will be having a meaningful impact. 
uh, and certainly any more that they deliver from here will, will be biting uh, over the coming months. Because of our exposure to residential property, does that mean that the RBA doesn't have to raise as much as over, as central banks overseas do um, because because it you know for every 25 50 basis points it has a disproportionately larger uh, effect on Australia's economy yeah that would certainly be our view so that the neutral rate um, of interest if you like this kind of theoretical concept that's out there um, that sort of suggests there's a there's a level of interest rates at which the economy is neither running hot or running too cold it's kind of just about right um, and there's there's discussion and debate as to what that is uh, in different markets and economies our view um, is that the neutral rate for the RBA is lower than it has been in private uh, previous cycles uh, materially lower uh, well, and what, so why is that well again it's it's looking at uh, metrics like um, level of debt levels uh, average level of debt levels at the household level um, average levels of income and what proportion of income is spent um, you know, per month on, on sort of servicing those debt levels. In other words, how high do interest rates have to go uh, before you're at um, comparable periods in the past where policy has been deemed to be neutral and, uh, and so forth. And, and so clearly with higher debt, income's higher but not nearly as much, the level of interest is, is lower. Uh, so, um, so in that regard, um, you know, we would we would expect that you know that neutral rate's probably one and a half to to one and three quarter percent. I mean, we, we'll see. Uh, but it would seem to us that the RBA is going to go above that, uh, and they're going to try and really tighten policy quickly uh, and curtail demand as as quickly as they can. All right, let's move on to fixed income specifically. Bonds have had a bit of a torrid twelve months. Why should investors still consider? Bonds for their portfolios. Yeah, it's been it's been unbelievably challenging for fixed income uh, almost across the world. So you know the reasons why they still have a place uh, in portfolios, I think, uh, goes back to the attributes that they have for investors. So first and foremost, bonds deliver very very stable and secure income. So if you're lending money to uh, governments, uh, certainly developed market governments. Uh, and high quality corporate issuers, then the probability of you getting your interest or coupon plus your principal back at maturity is exceptionally high. Uh, and so secondly, I think given an outlook for inflation and interest rates, if we can make a judgment that you know we aren't going to see yields and interest rates just ratchet higher for you know an extended period, we are going to reach a point where you look at the market and go, well, it's essentially giving me a reasonably predictable level of income of four or five percent, even higher. Uh, we know inflation is going to come down. We know that central banks will only get so far before they pause. You know, is that enough to compensate me given my framework and my outlooks? And I think um, you know that will be a pretty compelling position to take for investors looking out over the next one, two, three years. I mean, it's only been in recent times that the average yield on treasuries uh, and fixed income in the United States has moved higher than the dividend yield on the S&P 500, for example. And so prior to the pandemic, many people were saying, well, I need to own equities because I need income. Uh, you know, bond yields are very low and, you know, dividends by comparison, yes, they have some risk, but they're generally 
pretty high quality dividend streams and they're higher than bonds. I need to own equities. Well, now that has reversed. And so, you know, the actual income component alone um, from yield for fixed income is as compelling as it's been in many years. And I think we'll look back 12, 24 months and go, yep, that was that was a pretty decent time to start putting some money to work. And like any security, you're only crystallizing the losses if you sell these things. You're still getting the coupon payments, right? Correct. Correct. And that that is one of the um, elegantly simple things about this asset class. I mean, if you buy a bond that's priced at, let's say, for example, it's got a coupon of 3% and it's trading at 95 cents in the dollar and it's got a yield of four or four and a half, depending on what its maturity is, let's, let's kind of talk about those numbers. Well, you have that coupon coming in, you're going to get 100 cents back versus the 95 you paid. And so your total return or yield to maturity should be reasonably attractive and barring something going wrong, the, the government or the, the company defaulting, um, you, can, you can kind of sleep pretty well at night. So which areas of fixed income do you think offer the best value at the moment where the market has, has mispriced these securities? So I think one way to look at that is, is think about, well, the first six months of the year, where, where has underperformed the most? Um, and is that, is that the first place to look uh, in terms of you know, considering where the best value is going forward? Do we see a mean reversion? Uh, and the answer to that is yes and no. So some of the uh, larger sources of underperformance have been in very long duration bonds. So the longer the duration, the more exposure uh, sensitivity to interest rates, the more they've declined in capital value. To some degree, as we phase through uh, this period where rates are moving higher and inflation is being dealt with, they will start to perform again. And so I think you know, we will we will get to the point where you know long duration government securities are are of interest. Um, but equally, there have been parts of the credit market that have underperformed quite significantly, and we wouldn't necessarily say just because they've fallen they're going to they're going to snap back. So if recession risks are higher. Uh, and more meaningful than they have been, then, for example, very, very high-risk, high-yield bonds, uh, which have underperformed considerably in the first six months of the year, um, may be in for a more challenging period, uh, particularly if it is a recession environment uh, in the US. So we wouldn't necessarily look at that and say, hey, now's the time to, to pile in. But on the other hand, between those two ends of the spectrum, if you like, your high quality corporate bonds where the underlying default risk is very, very low indeed, but they have sort of underperformed as yields have moved higher and spreads widened as well, uh, they look really, really compelling. So I think those sorts of bonds will perform very, very well once we start to realize that you know central banks aren't, aren't going to completely choke off the economy and there's going to be a point where they start to say, yep, yeah, we've done enough. Now we can kind of ease back. So what do Franklin Templeton's portfolios look like at the moment? Well, to be honest, our portfolios, you know, I like to think are pretty boring. Um, we, boring is we good. We own a lot of, boring is good in, in this business. I mean, we own a lot of bonds that um, are from very, very reliable sources of, of income and return. So government related, very high quality corporate issuers. Um, we have a little bit of duration. We have a little bit of exposure to this idea that central banks are really going to struggle to get as high in interest rates as what the market has already priced. Um, and so we just think you have to you have to have a little bit of exposure to that idea at the moment, given how much markets have moved. Um, 
And, you know, we're sitting there really, I think, looking for clearer signs that the worst is really past, that, you know, inflation is now phasing through some sort of peak. It will start to decelerate in the in the second half at some stage. Um, and, and, and to look to add to some of those positions, if you like. So increase our sort of exposure to the same sort of core ideas. Uh, and so, you know, it's... Uh, as I said earlier, it, it can be a decidedly simple game, but but a very frustrating one because the returns do take a little bit of time to to come through. When people read about uh, fixed income, it's hard to get past headlines and information about you know the three or the ten year treasury. Um, could you tell us a corner of the fixed income market that investors may not be so informed about um, that you think they they should consider? So, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a number of market indicators that tend to catch all the media attention in terms of projecting, you know, general levels. The US ten year Treasury is probably the most widely cited. Uh, Australian government bond yields similar, uh, and so that gives you a certain broad barometer for interest rates, but it doesn't really go very far to giving you insight into the the very very broad spectrum that this this asset class is. Uh, and so, for example, uh, you know, we would look to uh, some of the opportunities that are in high-quality parts of the Asia-Pacific, um, you know, but by, by which I mean I'm talking about countries like Taiwan, South Korea, uh, which are very, very strong economies uh, in their own right. They offer some interesting opportunities, uh, both in terms of bonds that are issued by those countries and companies in those countries in, in Aussie dollars as well as US dollars, but even in their local currency as well. Uh, and so you have the opportunity to really dissect um, different parts of the market that offer discrete sources of alpha, uh, but really n- rarely get that sort of broad uh, media attention when you know people are giving a, a sort of rundown on the fixed income market. The, do the same risks apply in fixed income when you invest in these securities overseas uh, as as do equities? Is there exchange rate risk, for instance? Certainly, if you're buying a security in another currency, there there is exchange rate risk. Uh, we generally prefer to buy securities uh, in other currencies and hedge that currency risk, if you like, if we're after the the underlying bond itself, to, but we don't want the currency risk. Does that insurance cost you much? No, no. So that's 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 all about saying there. Well, I can I can own this bond in Aussie dollars, or I can own something similar in US dollars and then hedge the currency and what do the two compare? When I line them up and say, what are they going to give me from a local investor's perspective, which one looks better? Uh, but I should say as well, I mean, selectively currency does offer opportunity. And so, you know, we will look at that as well, but recognizing that currency is incredibly volatile. And so, you know, you always want to size positions um, appropriately to try and capture some return, but not expose, uh, you know, portfolios to too much risk. Can currency swaps be made sense of in terms of forecasting? Is it, is it a mugs game or, or you can exploit opportunities there? Yeah, so there's two things going on there. So the first is if we if we look at um, you know a bond from say you know Australian an Australian bank, um, which we can purchase in Australian dollars, uh, but we could also purchase you know a security from one of those issuers in US dollars or indeed euros, for example, or other currencies, and then. Looking at the different options and saying, well, if I if I hedge the various foreign currency securities back to Australia, 
what sort of return is that going to provide our investors relative to a local equivalent? Uh, and so that's purely about um, relative value, if you will, uh, rather than the currency component itself um, necessarily being a, a source of alpha. Um, but uh, you know, separate to that, we would look at you know, are currencies likely to appreciate or depreciate um, based on the underlying fundamentals of those particular um, FX markets, uh, and and potentially uh, look to you know quite separately position for for that outcome. So you know, the Aussie dollar, you know, we're trading around sixty eight cents. Um, yeah, it it is probably undervalued. Uh, you know, there is probably a case for the Aussie dollar to actually appreciate, and therefore. Um, you know, take exposure to to that uh, within within portfolios, but um, you know, there's there's a number of factors to consider there that mean it's not necessarily going to be a one way one way street. So when you've got some amount of conviction there, you you, you hedge less and kind of <laughs> take the gamble. Effectively, effectively. Well, I mean, try not to use the words "take a gamble." <laughs> um, so harsh, but but, uh, but there are um, there are certainly drivers that we think. Um, you know, from time to time, should should have a a bigger influence on, on on a currency market. Okay, now Andrew, there are three questions we always ask our guests uh, every podcast. But given that you're not an equity guy, you're a fixed income guy, we're going to tweak it a little bit. Um, but question one: What's the single biggest thing investors are getting wrong about markets at the moment? I think there has been a uh, a significant shift in investors' mindset since the pandemic that the world has has materially changed and that therefore uh, some of the circumstances that we're now confronting are, are structurally different to what they were, say, in 2019, and therefore that's going to have a much more enduring impact on central bank policy, interest rates, bond markets, et cetera. Uh, and by that I mean things like um, you know the impact of globalization on generally lowering prices and keeping them low. Um, structure of employment markets, uh, etc. And look, we 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 remain open to the possibility that things may, in fact, um, tweak a little. But the big long-term drivers, the secular forces that are at play, that generally set interest rates over the long term, are, to our mind, as powerful as they've as they've ever been. And so, by that, uh, we would point to uh, the nature of uh, demographic. Demographic factors in Australia, in the US, in Europe, in Japan, uh, in, and indeed in places like China, as being materially um, different to what they have been in, say, the 1970s. We talked about earlier uh, the level of debt, uh, which was obviously a tool deployed through the pandemic to try and bolster demand, boost economies, is very, very meaningful, and that's that's essentially a pull forward of future demand to the present uh, by using borrowings. Well, that's happened. And that indeed, um, you know, is in a sense a, a disinflationary force. Uh, and then, of course, those other long-term factors which we think are still there, like globalization, that has not gone away um, by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, I think we're going to see, uh, you know, a resurgence of you know global trade, global forces from the globalized world um, uh, over the next sort of twelve to twenty-four months. Uh, and then factors like technology, which of course are significant in terms of the way we um, we price goods and services, uh, you know that's that's only going to accelerate as this decade continues. So I think 
you know, it is hard to get a lot of um, interest in in the idea that, oh my goodness, the, the pandemic hasn't changed us forever. It has changed us in in some ways as as a human population, of course. Um, but in terms of market forces, I think we're going to phase through this in 2023, 2024, in the absence of some, you know, shock such as we we went through with COVID, uh, we'll be starting to realise that actually more is the same than has changed. So you think the increases we've seen in different parts of the world, you know, in e- economic protectionism, um, are more transitory, maybe maybe pegged more to uh, to election cycles than a a permanent structural shift that's here to stay. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think there's only so much that you know economies themselves can and will produce, and so you know we are going to remain, particularly in a country like this one, as dependent, if not more, on you know the global supply chain, the global manufacturing base for our goods and services as as we have in the past, and so you know, I don't see that changing uh, in the in the short term. All right, question two. Could you share a story of a big win or a big loss uh, you've had in your investing career? Um, what happened and what did you learn from it? Sure. So, um, well, I guess it's easy to focus on the big wins. Um, but, you know, I guess it's not that long ago that we were, you know, in the early parts of, of 2020 moving into the pandemic and, um, you know, the the market turmoil that that brought, and that similarly for different reasons though um, saw bond prices fall significantly, particularly in that March April period, uh, and particularly for bonds in the corporate space where there was uh, a lack of liquidity and there was concerns over what the pandemic would ultimately mean. Uh, and we purchased a lot of those, so we um, you know took a view that you know this this period would pass, uh, and so we we actually. Uh, you know, took a fairly sizable position in a lot of sectors and securities that have been quite beaten up. Um, and of course, as 2020 started to evolve, uh, monetary policy did, did ease. We found out that the pandemic was going to be difficult, but it wasn't going to be the end of the world, so to speak. Um, and markets did, in, in, did indeed bounce back. So yeah, let's put that down to a win. Um, and, uh, you know, we look forward to having some more of those again in the future. No doubt you will. Okay, question three. If markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own a bond of a single duration uh, and rating, um, what would it be? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think, um, you know, right here and now, I would be more than happy to own bonds of, Say five to ten years in maturity, so a little bit longer than that that five year time horizon. Um, not necessarily government, but pretty high quality. So let's say single A and above, uh, and you know yields in in that sort of regard that were probably well into the fives, if not close to six percent. So I'd be happy to lock that in the bottom drawer and and just go away. Love it, Andrew. Thanks so much for coming on Rules of Investing. We'll have to have you back on when uh, when inflation turns, maybe. <laughs> Well, thanks very much, David. We very much look forward to that day. <laughs> thanks, Andrew. Well, that's it for today's episode. The 6040 portfolio has life left in it still. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next week.